Climate justice includes making sure that the benefits of clean energy get to everybody, uh, including the one billion people in the world today who never switch the switch for electricity. Hi, this is Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. In our day jobs, we're from the International Rescue Committee, and Grant and I think about how we can design and test new solutions. And what's been great about this series so far has been digging into all sorts of different issues that can help us hopefully improve the lives of people affected by crisis. So far this season, we've focused on three of the most important issues facing humanitarians today. The ways in which war is changing and the future of war, refugee resettlement, and finally, how climate change is shaping displacement. Today is the final episode in the climate change series, and it gives us a second to take a step back and look at some of the fascinating people that we've talked with. Over the arc of this season, we have had conversations that have really changed the ways that I have thought. I think about our conversation with Minister Hussein, the Minister of Refugee Citizenship and Immigration of Canada, who not only talked about a different way of doing ground-up refugee resettlement, but also talked about opening up spots for refugees in unique ways that actually aren't there today in the humanitarian system. What I've really enjoyed about this season is that we've been able to take themes and go into real depth by doing three or four episodes on one topic like the future of war. And in fact, that series itself, I really enjoyed because I knew so little about it, Um, particularly talking to people like the hosts of the Bombshell podcast crew, which were two defence experts talking to us about how technology is going to disrupt warfare and potentially make it more prolonged. This is our final episode in our series on climate change, and we have a very exciting guest, Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson was the first woman to be Ireland's president and the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And most recently, she has been turning her attention to climate change and its impact not only on displacement, but politics and gender. Mary Robinson is a stalwart and heavyweight that's been around the space for a while, and this is a really exciting episode. When we were just trying to plan out this season, Mary Robinson was Grant's favourite guest and he was really, really excited. So we scheduled it just when he was on holiday in the Himalayas. Um, So it's just me doing this podcast um, and I think it's brilliant, actually. It's really, really good. I haven't even listened to it because I've been so upset that I wasn't able to participate. But I am excited to listen to this, not only because of Mary Robinson's more recent work on climate change, but because of the long history she has in dealing with contentious politics, human rights, refugee issues, and all of the alike. There's very few people who are able to bring the long type of history she does to a burning and crucial issue from a new perspective. And this is an exciting episode exactly because it's bringing that type of voice to this issue. So just to annoy Grant, here is the interview he wanted to do with Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson, welcome to Displaced. Thank you. So you actually have a, a, a podcast called Mothers of Invention, and you, you've done it with a co-host who's a comedian, uh, Maeve Higgins. And I normally actually present with a, another co-host called Grant Gordon, who, who does fancy himself as a comedian sometimes, but sadly he's not able to be here. He's in the Himalayas. I'm just really interested in why you chose to try and bring humour to the issue of, of climate change and, and, and chose Maeve to be your co-host. Well, first of all, I didn't even know about 18 months ago what a podcast was. I'm an elder, you know, I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> do podcasts. And I had been <clears throat> thinking about doing a documentary. I had a book on climate justice, which had just gone to press, but wasn't yet published. And I still wanted to get the message out, get the stories out, get young people interested. And uh, the people who advised me, Doc Society, said, no, no, don't do a, um, a documentary. It's done all over the place. 
uh, why don't you do a podcast? And I had to ask the stupid question, what's a podcast? <laughs> and then it was they who suggested that I might be, first of all, do a pilot with one with two people and Maeve was the first of them. And when I was told that she was a comedian, I was a bit iffy. You know, I'm a former president, you know, a comedian, come on. And uh, actually it worked a charm. You know, the, from the first 15 minutes, it was clear we were made for each other. Uh, Maeve was eight when I was elected president and she's half respectful. <laughs> I think she describes herself as your cultural attaché to podcasting. Is that right? I think she likes to describe herself in all <laughs> kinds of exciting ways. <laughs> Just like my co-host. Um, so I, I want to dive into the question of, of climate change in a bit more depth. And uh, I know in your book, you talk about how you came to this issue quite late. It wasn't something that was uh, a concern within your presidency or even when you were initially starting your role in the United Nations. But you came to it, I think, in the early 2000s, not out of an interest in environmental issues per se in terms of um, you know, polar ice caps or uh, particular environmental issues, but more from a concern about the impacts on people. And that really echoed my own sort of concern and interest in climate change. I start off from a, a social policy lens, worried about the most disadvantaged people. And I became more and more worried about climate change being something that was the defining social policy challenge of our era. And I think this is a really interesting dimension to climate change because when Al Gore, I think in the 2000s, talked about climate change being a planetary emergency, it felt like to me it missed the point. It was actually a humanitarian emergency. And, and that's something you're really trying to bring out, isn't it, in your, in your work? Very much so, yes. Um, uh, you're quite right. I did come late to it. I didn't. I was in a silo on human rights and gender and people with disabilities, et cetera, in the UN, and there was somebody else dealing with climate. It wasn't until I was on the ground in African countries dealing with rights that are very important if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, education, shelter. And I saw the dramatic impacts and people kept saying to me, things are so much worse. And it was all about not being able to predict, not knowing what was going to happen. Uh, the number of women in particular said to me, I thought God was punishing us. Mm -hmm. Just the, the sheer unexpected, unpredictable, uh, you know, unexplained reality that people were facing and not knowing why and not, of course, being responsible for it uh, because they don't drive cars, don't do major manufacturing. And yet they were buffeted by our lifestyles, basically. And uh, that brought out to me the injustice of climate change, the injustice of the fact that it's the poorest countries and communities, small island states, indigenous communities, even poor communities in rich countries that are disproportionately affected when something like Katrina hits in the United States or whatever the issue may be. Uh, so climate justice also includes uh, making sure that the benefits of clean energy get to everybody, mm -hmm. uh, including the 1, billion, 1, point, 1 billion people in the world today who never switch the switch for electricity. I just want to pick up on this phrase climate justice that you, you referred to, because in many ways, there's been concern about equity and justice concerns in the climate change debate for, for many decades. So if I think back to the, uh, the UNFCCC, the first convention in 1992 about climate change, it talked about common but differentiated responsibilities and had clearly different um, uh, burdens placed on rich and poor countries. Um, similarly, sustainable development has been a notion that's about combining the social development as well as the environmental and economic change. Um, contraction and convergence, again, was a, a concept that was all about saying we ought to have the, the same per capita emissions as countries rather than the rich taking up all their share. So what? why did you feel the need to really focus on climate justice as a new phrase uh, and push that into the debate? 
I think I became aware when I, you know, began to look at the climate world and read up um, on the science in particular, and then attended my first conference, which was the conference in Copenhagen. I was quite shocked at how male it was, how focused on science and technology and environment, not on people. And then I went back to the original climate convention and saw that it had one sentence about people, in fact, uh, if you can call it, mm. well, it is about people, you know, um, talking about the current and future generations of humankind. Uh, and that's the only sentence about people. And I suppose coming from a human rights perspective and having seen um, in African countries over a number of years the devastating impact, I was really quite shocked. There was no discussion on gender. There was no discussion on human rights. And I thought, well, this is very strange. This, is, this has to be addressed. And I think it's hugely important because in the climate change world and even more so in the energy industries and energy world, it tends to be very much dominated by engineers and economists, which often are predominantly dominated by by men. So I think it's a, a really interesting point. And your podcast is actually called, um, I think the subtitle is A Man-Made Problem with uh, Feminist Solutions. Is that right? That's right. And of course, we, you know, we do explain that man-made is generic. It includes women. You know, we're all responsible. Men probably had more power and more, more capacity to pollute. So they probably are more responsible. Um, but a feminist solution definitely includes men. We're very sure of that. I just want to push on this justice question a bit further, because um, I think you can make the argument that unless you address the justice questions, the sense of inequity between rich and poor countries with the rich who have basically cause the problem in the poorer countries that are basically going to be uh, on the, the, the receive the, the most difficult consequences. Unless you can do that, you can't actually get collective action because there's such a big blame game. But I think Yeah, I, I think it's it's really important that we see it as something that everybody has to do their utmost to address. Mm -hmm. And I've been very impressed because I when I had my mandate as the special envoy on climate change before the Paris Agreement, and then in 2016, I had a mandate on El Nino and climate for the Secretary General of the UN. And I was in touch a lot with small island states and, and poorest countries, as I still am. And they are very ambitious to get the clean energy, but they need the technology, they need the skills, they need the, you know, the transfer of technology, basically. And therefore, you know, if we're going to get to where we need to get to in the short space of time we have, which, you know, um, the IPCC said, you know, we have 12 years, it was, it was 12 years when they said it in October, it's 11 years now to yeah. reduce by 45% our global greenhouse gas emissions to, to be on track for um, a net zero carbon world in 2050. Uh, we, we need to really, you know, have a sense of urgency. Small island states and least developed countries really have that urgency about going um, clean energy. And what we need is a solidarity and an empathy to enable them to do that. And enable the, you know, the, the kind of transition in the richer parts of the world, the just transition out of fossil fuel, which requires a huge amount of support for workers in the fossil fuel industry, communities that depend on the fossil fuel industry at the moment in order to move forward. So we have big challenges in different parts of the world mm -hmm. and we can only do it with a kind of common solidarity and purpose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my question almost is when you start to talk about justice, while that is obviously absolutely critical and quite important in terms of bringing different players on board, sometimes when you start um, discussing what is fair, 
you allow people, well, you actually create divisions. So I, I can think back to Indian negotiators about 10 years ago, basically saying, we're going to do nothing because you've caused the problem, rich world. And um, you should basically bear all the brunt of the, uh, of, of the change and the transition. And we're going to do nothing until you've basically brought down your emissions. And even though that was perfectly fair in many ways, it's not necessarily productive for such a large economy to take that kind of stance. And obviously, things have moved on, and um, we've got to a much yeah, better I, position. I, I, I've been, yeah, I've been kind of aware of some tensions, particularly with the common and differentiated responsibility, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we haven't really reconciled how that works out in practice. Um, and you know, the richest countries, you know, with the most capacity to change, haven't been ambitious enough about changing quickly enough. And so there is. A, a tension in that. But, you know, I feel that, you know, children around the world are really reminding us of the justice dimension because mm. there's no arguing about the injustice they're talking about. We are not protecting them. And that is, you know, a real challenge to us. And they speak truth to power in saying, you know, I want to have children and grandchildren, but I don't even think I'm going to have a livable life myself. What are you doing about this? And it's very compelling stuff. I mean, Greta Thunberg, when she spoke at the COP in Katowice and when she spoke in Davos, was devastating because there's no answer. We are not protecting younger future generations. And we have to really understand that injustice in order to square the circle and get back to really being serious about the ambition that we need for both climate and a sustainable future. I mean, that touches on another a large part of the work that your foundation does and promotes, which is participation and actually trying to engage the voices of marginalised communities and, and young people to play their role in this debate. Yes, we found it very interesting, you know, harking back to what I was talking about, the uh, troika of women ministers, women leaders on gender and climate. Um, having started to work on getting more um, understanding of the gender dimensions of climate change, which are huge. Mm -hmm. When you undermine um, poverty because of climate disruption and impacts, it's women who have to pick up the pieces. And the social roles of women are different. So there's a huge gender dimension to climate change. And we talked all about that. And then, you know, I was very glad that the Troika of Women Leaders on Gender and Climate decided one of the best things they could do was to make space for grassroots and indigenous women and young women who had the first line stories, the front line stories of how they were coping with climate change. So from about you know, 2012, 2013 on, um, at different conferences, we had these women ministers invite in their delegation, grassroots women, young women, indigenous women. And these were the voices that made a huge impact in Paris and after Paris and continue to do so. There's nothing more compelling than hearing firsthand the story of a woman and her community and what she's been doing and trying to do. You know, no, and the delegates are generally you know, quite taken aback by this truth to power that they mm. hear. And uh, you know, I've, I've been delighted uh, to, I have many friends now, they're, they're also, a number of them are in the book on climate justice, hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future, because that's what they're doing. And when we talk about how to bring marginalised voices into the debate, you gave some examples there and you do in your book. One question that I have is, one, you know, it, it takes quite a lot of time uh, and effort to do this. It often can sometimes involve only a, a relatively narrow segment of society because it's, it's quite burdensome on communities to involve them. Um, 
But also sometimes I think when we engage communities, they will the end. They want to obviously tackle climate change, but there is a sometimes a resistance to actually embrace the changes required to make emissions reductions, such as increasing energy costs or uh, building new infrastructure. So do you think it's important to engage communities both in the uh, activism about why we need to tackle climate change, but also in solutions? Very much so. And, you know, by and large, the uh, voices that I'm talking about are very keen on the solutions. I mean, let me give you an example. Agnes Elena is a, um, a, a pastoralist and she's part of the... Um, oh, I'm, I've had an elder moment um, of the um, um, traditional community in Kenya. Um, and uh, she discovered that the biggest wind farm in, in Kenya was being um, uh, built on their land. Nobody regarded the pastoralists as having any land rights. They were just simple poor people with their animals. They weren't supposed to have any land rights and they weren't getting the benefit of the wind power that would be generated. So they eventually got legal advice and were able to stop uh, for a while the wind power generation uh, until uh, you know the, their rights were recognised. And um, I, you know th there are a lot of complaints about uh, large mega projects putting in clean energy without regard to uh, the land rights, the water rights, the indigenous people's consent. Um, and this is becoming an increasing problem as we try to uh, become more ambitious about climate change. So that's why part of climate justice is you have to respect human rights and gender in all climate action as well, in all the planning for how we address climate. And uh, I find that, um, you know, the communities are ready for solutions. It's maybe in the developed world, there's a not in my backyard desire mm. not to have wind farms or, um, you know, large solar projects near you. But generally, that's because they haven't been consulted. They haven't been, you know, talked to and, and explained why this is so important. So that's why participation and discussion is so important in moving forward. Can I just turn turn now to the question of climate change displacement? And um, we're at the end of a series on climate change and how it affects displaced communities, particularly in the future. And we've had uh, a number of interesting conversations about how to think about climate change and displacement. And one with Jane McAdam at the beginning of our series talked about why climate change refugees is actually not a very sensible notion because um, what we're talking about when it comes to displacement is often displacement that occurs within countries rather than between countries. If it's often multi-causal, it's to do with weak governance and economic concerns. It's quite hard to attribute the precise uh, impact of climate change, even though it's there. Often it happens slowly rather than quickly. It may be voluntary as well as planned uh, and forced. So if climate change refugees, which is a sort of popular notion that people might be able to get their head around, isn't the right way of thinking about this issue, what is the right way of framing climate change and its relationship to displacement? It's a, a subject that my foundation focused on a lot from the very beginning because we recognise the vulnerability of these communities. And we talk about climate displaced people, not climate refugees, for the very good reason that you said that they don't have refugee status, they don't have the protection. And we think that when you look at uh, climate displaced, there are a number of gaps that particularly apply to these communities. The first is a loss 
of culture and physical heritage, even if they're moved from within their country, you know, even if the move is only uh, 50 miles or 100 miles, they're away from their own place, the place where their bodies were buried, the culture, the neighbourhood, you know, that's tough. If they're displaced outside their country, it's even tougher. Um, I remember, you know, hearing about this from a friend of mine, um, Ursula Rakova, who has been moving her small population from the Cataract Islands to uh, Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, which is about 180-something kilometers away. And, you know, it's, it's 1,500 people. She's had to talk about, um, uh, you know, go and first of all buy the land and then bring small groups over so they get to know neighbors and then uh, gradually move them. And then she says with such sadness but there's nothing we can do about the fact that we have to leave the land of the bones of our ancestors. And I think when we talk about climate displaced, we're going to have to talk a lot about how to prepare for that displacement, which inevitably is going to come, even if we do get on track to a 1.5 degree world. We've, we've so much up there that there are going to be communities that will have to leave um, because of the, the, the work, the, 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 you know, the damage we've already done, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it needs, you know, grandparents to talk to grandchildren, to, to, to build a bank of cultural knowledge of place. And then the second one is, you know, it's a loss of ability to work and make a decent, decent living for themselves and their families. That's true of other migrants. But, you know, when you have communities that move, it can be very devastating. And on the whole, when we're talking climate change, we're, we're probably talking about planning of a community, watching the seawater rise, watching the saltwater incursion and knowing um, it's happening in Alaska, in the United States, for example, that they're going to have to move. And so it's a planned move. There are 100 villages in Fiji that are going to have to move. They've managed to move two so far. And it's been very expensive and very, you know, costly in human terms in, in, uh, because of the reasons I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's an erosion so also of, of protections that were there in their original village and their original community where they protected each other. They were eyes and ears for each other. Mm-hmm. And if they're dispersed, then that too is lost. So I think it, a difference that I feel we should pay attention to is less the individual and more the community as a whole, even though it's probably small communities or indeed small islands. I mean, one of the stories in my book on climate justice is the story of Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, who realized when he went to Copenhagen to that conference that they weren't going to agree 1.5 in the text. Therefore, his people would have no future by about 2050 because their small atolls would go under. So he went back and he bought land in Fiji to safeguard his people so they could migrate with dignity. And then he decided to fight back. And he was part of the um, movement towards Paris and the small island states insisting on getting 1.5 into the text. And then, of course, what happened last October was that the scientists in the um, IPCC told us this wasn't just for small island states. This is the safe world for everyone. Mm. So I think we should be very grateful to those hardworking representatives of the Marshall Islands and Kiribati and uh, uh, Tuvalu and the uh, Caribbean islands, etc., who fought so hard to get that in the text because, in fact, it's brought us a reality. And do you think that example of a planned move um, is something we're going to see um, a lot more of? Is that going to be a large part of the story about how we prepare for a world, even of 1.5 degrees, but certainly if we end up in, in three degrees? Is that, likely, is that likely to be a common thing? Yeah, I think it's either going to be planned or sadly unplanned, but it's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, even in 
circumstances where we do, as I hope we and, and you know and, and really believe we will uh, get much more serious about working hard to stay at 1.5 and therefore um, changing a great deal um, in our lifestyles at the moment, even in our economy of you know consumption and production, production and consumption, consume, consume um, mm. to, to to build up the economy. That has to change, um, but. Uh, you know, if you look at the flooding at the moment, which I've been looking at in recent days in Mozambique and also in Zimbabwe, they're devastated by a disaster they cannot cope with or, or afford. And Mozambique um, is hugely affected by it. It's the worst flooding they've ever had, I think. Um, I don't know whether people will be able to go back any, in any sense and live in places where they lived before. They'll be displaced probably within their country, Mozambique or Zimbabwe or Malawi, the other country affected. But uh, it will be, as I said, it will be climate displacement and a poverty that comes with that, a total destruction of a way of life and livelihoods. And they have to try and build resilience and be humiliated by having to beg for food in the initial stages and then gradually become more resilient. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a human tragedy unfolding for those who are least responsible for the problem. But presumably it's much better if we try to do this through planned moves and identifying mo the most at-risk communities rather than doing it in an unmanaged, unplanned way. Very much so. In order to do that, you know, presumably it has to be somebody's job to make those decisions about forecasting and planning, engage communities, given what we were talking about before about participation, but also finance the whole uh, whole issue and, and, and figure out where to uh, to allow communities to move. That's a huge undertaking. Whose job is it to do that now? Whose job should it be? Well, my foundation spent quite a long time working in support with many others of the Global Compact on Migration, precisely uh, on safe, orderly uh, migration, precisely because that was giving the framework for countries to start to address this problem. And I'm very glad that climate displaced people were recognised. You know, we need to manage migration much better than we do and have a much more positive narrative about it um, that, you know, that we've always had human mobility. Uh, every country has migrants and my own country, Ireland, you know, had a huge exodus of our people to other countries and helped to build those other countries. And we now link with them with an Irish diaspora that we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. And other countries have their own narratives. But the, the point is that um, we need to manage migration as a human story uh, that's all our story. And that comes to the question about whether some of the richer nations in particular can be a place whereby migrants can go um, and move to rather than just be stuck at the first uh, point of asylum. That is something that's obviously hugely difficult to do politically now. You've seen uh, in the US declining um, rates of refugee resettlement under the Trump administration. How optimistic are you about building more political will for countries to accept migrants, particularly due to climate displacement? I certainly think we're not going through a very good time at the moment <laughs> because we're not getting enough leadership yeah. on a much more positive narrative, first of all, on what we're talking about. And, uh, you know, a kind of narrative that reminds us of our own humanity, reminds us of our history, every country, um, of its own history. And 
recognises that human mobility has been a fact of human existence and largely migrants help to build countries when they're um, when they come to new countries. But the issues you're talking about we're already dealing with in the context of migrants. We see that, you know, with the war in Syria, it's the neighbours of Syria, it's Lebanon, it's Jordan, it's Turkey that has taken a disproportionate number of migrants. Um, the European Union is failing in its solidarity, has made the Dublin Treaty a a kind of gospel of first entry points so you can push everything back to the Mediterranean, to Greece and Italy and and to some extent Spain to to carry an undue burden. And countries of the Eastern Bloc, um, some of them have forgotten their own history of how they were helped in times of difficulty um, and are closing their doors in a a very populist um, uh, way that... Uh, you know, um, nationalist way of a, a sort of um, very undesirable values. And we need to counter this. We need to have mm-hmm. voices. I mean, I'm chair of the elders at the moment. The elders are very, very keen um, to have a much more positive human narrative to remind ourselves that we're talking about, um, you know, our own history in a way. Every country's history um, uh, is bound up with moments of uh, displacement of one sort or another or receiving in. Uh, I remember Jimmy Carter talking about how proud he was to open the doors in the United States for uh, refugees from Cambodia at a particular time. And, 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 and uh, you know, uh, there's just a need to, um, to somehow um, build the stories and also the stories of individual individuals who move, who help to be, uh, you know, champions in the countries that they move to of whatever sort. Um, I think that all of these stories help. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back soon with Mary Robinson. You're listening to Displace and I'm chatting to Mary Robinson. I want to switch tack to a slightly different aspect of climate change displacement, which is um, how climate change displacement can cause um, conflict or be um, exacerbating conflict and how we deal with that. Because so far we've talked about the direct um, consequence of climate change causing people to flee due to drought or water scarcity or other other aspects. But the other problem is that you may well see climate change, um, particularly in weakly governed or, or existing conflicts, actually exacerbate the, the violence. And you oversaw the implementation of a peace deal in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in, in 2013. And I'm just interested in your views on, well, firstly, the extent to which climate change is going to complicate um, conflict resolution processes like that, but also whether there are actual implications for how we do conflict resolution as a result of climate change. Yeah, this is, this is something I'm really very interested in. I mean, I have read quite a bit about the extent of the severe drought in Syria for four years that displaced a lot of people, that led to internal conflict, that led to a wider um, you know, conflict in Syria itself that led to the war. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I've seen, uh, I mean, it's not so much that climate is the only factor, and it's that link between um, a low level of conflict displacing anyway, and then, um, you know, either a hurricane or, or severe drought or something, just exacerbating um, the existing uh, situation. Uh, I'm involved 
um, with a number of others now in trying to forge better links between the work that has been done already on women, peace and security, on you know Council Resolution 1325 and other Council resolutions, and linking that now with climate and climate justice, you know, trying to uh, understand that uh, climate is uh, an exacerbating factor in conflicts now. Um, and it's uh, it's there. It's 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 causing a huge aggravation of existing problems, but it's not actually being addressed as such. And we need to factor that in much more and realize that uh, this is another dimension that is increasingly um, a, pu- a push factor for communities, together with conflict and violence generally displacing them. And just as we wind up, I want to try going back to something you said earlier, which was lamenting the lack of political leadership and the vacuum that you see in many of these debates right now. You're uh, part of the elders, a group of of statesmen uh, and human rights advocates that do enormous amount of work in, in various areas. What do you see as your role and the role of leaders like uh, you see in the elders being in the climate change displacement area? Is it something that you think you can make a difference on? Well, certainly it is a priority for us in our work and has been really right from the beginning. Um, But in our last, you know, in our current strategy, uh, we regard climate change as one of the two existential threats. The other one is nuclear disarmament, and that also we're very concerned about. And um, we therefore prioritize um, uh, the the importance of um, a values-led approach and a human-centered approach along the lines we've been talking about with the major countries and major emitters taking their share of responsibility and uh, moving rapidly to the world we need to get to, um, achieving the target of uh, 1.5 degrees, um, by, which means a 45% reduction in emissions by uh, 2030. And we, we um, are very focused on how to get the larger country emitters and the larger company emitters um, to take their responsibility fully in that matter, but also um, to be very close to those most affected and those most vulnerable um, in a climate justice sense. Um, we also are concerned about the multilateral system. Um, we're going through what we call a bumpy time mm. um, with you know, populist leaders uh, focusing on a, a kind of nationalism, whereas we know that um, the problems we're facing need uh, solidarity and multilateral approaches and uh, need agreement between countries as to how to address these issues. And at the same time, uh, we're, we're aware that, uh, you know, uh, this is, you know, time time moves on and and we do see good leadership as well. I mean, Jacinda Ardern is giving very good leadership in New Zealand at the moment in the context of that terrible killing um, of 50 uh, Muslims in two mosques. And, you know, she has got the right tone, the right language, the right leadership. And we need more of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we certainly uh, will be using our best endeavours as elders. Um, we're uh, independent, but we're also, you know, um, uh, you know, we can do so much. We're, we're humble and modest about what we can do, but we certainly will be uh, speaking out very much still on uh, the issue of climate change and climate displacement, and we will be. Uh, 
very supportive of multilateral efforts to address problems because we think that's the only way forward. And what's the role of the UN here? Because I think you said uh, before that um, you, you actually never gave a speech on climate change when you were UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. It was uh, as you were doing that job, you started to see the connections. But there is a risk, isn't there, of the siloing of this issue between human rights, UNHCR, um, environment and climate change. Are we going to get the leadership from the UN or, or does there need to be change there as well? There is a risk of siloing, but I think the UN is, is both aware of that risk and has hopefully moved on a little bit from it. Um, I think the 2030 Agenda, um, which was adopted by 193 countries in September 2015, which is not so long ago, with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals, was an attempt to actually break out of silos. And those 17 Sustainable Development Goals are both interlinked and require an interdisciplinary approach and require, you know, breaking out of both national and UN silos. Mm. And I think that is happening to some extent. I mean, there are coalitions now of states and business and um, cities and communities partnering to achieve those goals, you know, really seeking to implement the 2030 agenda and recognising um, that uh, this is the agenda and that the Paris Climate Agreement, as interpreted now by the scientists, gives us the guidance as to what is sustainable, that we have to stay at or below the 1.5 degrees. And therefore, uh, it's an even bigger challenge, but it's a global challenge we have to work at together and do it in full cooperation and under the guidance and leadership of the UN. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, even in a bumpy time of poor leadership in, uh, in certain important countries, um, we have to remember we have the frameworks and it's up to all of us to keep reiterating the importance of these frameworks and work them. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Cheers. Bye. That was a really great way to end our series on, on climate change. For me personally, it brought home just how profound the, the impact that climate change is going to have for humanitarians. And I know that's almost obvious, but we also probably have our head in the sand about the scale and breadth of the change it's going to bring about. I feel like I actively ignore climate change, as most people do, because it feels so intractable and so large. And to your point, Ravi, this was the series that really kind of brought it home for me. It also made me think a little bit more about what the future of humanitarian response looks like. There's oftentimes a differentiation between uh, organizations and responses to natural disasters versus man-made you know, man conflict or political conflict, rather. And this hit home that to actually be thinking about planning for the future of humanitarian response, you actually have to take much more seriously that natural disasters are going to be a larger part of what we're dealing with. Perhaps the most profound thing that I've taken away from this last uh, series on climate change is that trying to make the hard distinction between refugees and other forms of migration that may be due to all sorts of reasons, I think is going to become increasingly difficult. It already is. But we probably are looking at a world of much greater mobility, and we need to figure out ways of managing that in better ways, rather than getting obsessed about the categorization. I, I actually thought this was actually one of the most interesting pieces. I came in thinking that we were going to have long debates over like whether people displaced by climate should be called climate refugees or just refugees or something else. And consistently, what we heard from experts who think about this all the time is that you have to put down that debate and think about different frameworks. And it's clear to me that I think some of the frameworks that are coming to bear are early stage and nascent, but that a little bit of the old ones are outdated and aren't going to serve us.
you want any more on the topics we discussed today, check out our show notes on www.rescue.org slash displaced. Do tweet us because we want to carry on this conversation on climate change. Tell us what you thought about this series and our conversation here today and just how great it was just listening to me rather than Grant. Um, so do tweet at Grant M. Gordon to say cheerio and at Argo Murphy to um, discuss. Never tweet at me saying cheerio. <laughs> Before we sign off, an extra treat. We're bringing you two episodes in one. After our credits roll, you'll hear an episode from Mary Robinson's podcast, Mothers of Invention. It's called Fish Out of Hot Water, and it features Maeve Higgins, Mary's co-host, and Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, a lifelong ocean conservationist who creates solutions with social justice in mind. Stay tuned. It's a really great episode. And keep your eyes on this feed, because after our series on climate change is over, we are going to come at you with a couple of special episodes in which we're actually interviewing our family members. I'm interviewing my sister, Glenna Gordon, who is a fantastic photojournalist um, and somebody who has been working in conflict zones all over Africa and more recently uh, tracking the alt-right in the United States. Um, She does amazing work, and it's a really fun episode. And I'm interviewing my dad, largely because I wanted to try and get my mum finally to listen to Displace. Um, and I know she'll just sort of at least listen to Dad to say how bad he was. Um, Dad is somebody who was displaced himself during the Second World War, fleeing Burma. And we're going to be talking to him about that journey and his life after that. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. She's so excited that this is our last episode of the season. She's been holding her breath for this moment and has a mojito in hand to celebrate. Our engineer is Jelani Carter, and mixing for us is Gautam Shrikashan for this episode and all the other conversations that you've heard in Climate Change Series. And a huge thank you to the staff at the Women's Audio Mission Studio in San Francisco, where I am recording these episodes. Golda Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. At the RRC, Anna Fewer is our researcher. Special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sikorsky, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Do you have jet lag? I don't really, no. Yeah. No, I, I kind of tell my body to be good and, you know, wherever we are, that's the time and just get on with it. I try and sleep. <laughs> I sleep on the plane. Oh, my God. That's so funny <laughs> that you can just control time and well, space. Well, I don't say it works 100%, but I, I haven't yeah. felt real jet lag for a long, long time. Because if you gave into it every time, like every time you felt tired and you thought like, well, in Ireland it's you know, 1am, I'm just going to I never to think that. I never think, I think always forward looking. It's the time they say it is. Yes. Pay yeah. attention. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> Body, obey me. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're tired. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to Mothers of Invention. I'm a writer, comedian, podcast host. My name is Maeve Higgins and this is a show where you'll meet the most inspirational women around the world bringing the solutions to our climate crisis. It's also the show where I pick up tips about jet lag from my co-host Mary Robinson, who was the first female president of Ireland. You don't want me to go into your whole bio, do you Mary? No, not this time. (laughs) And do you learn anything from me, Mary? Um, I let me think now. I think I, there was one point uh, on our first session. I think uh, about podcasts. Yes, <laughs> we're a good podcast team, and Mary, you are coming along very nicely. I feel like you know another few seasons, and you can have your own lifestyle podcast just about your hobbies and things. Do you have hobbies? 
do you like oversee elections as a hobby? My hobbies you are actually garden. a state secret. I don't disclose <laughs> them. State secrets. <laughs> we have to do an expose podcast about what you get up to. This week, we're thinking about our beautiful oceans. We're meeting those working on solutions to the damage that carbon dioxide has done to them and exploring their potential to help us produce greener energy and food. And to help us do that, I'm delighted to welcome into the studio our first oceans mother, marine biologist Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. She's going to be our resident expert on the show this week and guide us through the topic. So it's not just two Irish women of different um, generations, it's also an important voice about the ocean. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming into the studio. I don't know if it's too disappointing, but actually my mother is Irish. Oh, that's great. Get her out! So maybe I'm not qualified to add (laughs) diversity to the show. absolutely. More than welcome. (laughs) That's totally fine. Also, Ireland is an island, which I always forget about. Yes. So is Manhattan, which most people forget about. I know. New York City is actually an archipelago with almost 400 miles of coastline. So you're a Brooklyn native, is that right, Diana? Born and raised, yeah. So how does a Brooklynite make her way into ocean conservation? I fell in love with the ocean when I first went swimming in the Florida Keys. It was like the only family vacation we ever really went on together, all three of us. Yeah. And I rode on a glass-bottom boat, and I saw a coral reef for the first time. And I went to an aquarium, and I held a sea urchin in my hand. And they have these hundreds of tube feet on the bottom. That's how they get around. And just (laughs) seeing this, like, weird, amazing (laughs) alien creature, I just... How totally fell you? for the ocean. I was five, and it was the summer that I learned to swim, too. So I decided I'm going to be a marine biologist because then going to the aquarium and hanging out at the beach will be my job. Yeah. Um, and I just was stubborn enough that, to that I stuck with it. More or less. There's a lot more time doing email than I would maybe like. <laughs> but, you know, such as my life. How could a five-year-old know that, though? I didn't see it coming. <laughs> so you're an adjunct professor at NYU. Yeah, I teach a class there, um, a seminar course called Urban Ocean Conservation about how mm-hmm. coastal cities can do a better job of um, doing right by the sea. Do you actually go down to the shore at all with them? With the class? Yeah. We have one field trip this semester to a wet lab on the Hudson called the River Project. Uh, will they get to see? There's seahorses that live under piers in the Hudson River. What? There's all this. There's whale watching in New York Harbor. There's there's just, seahorses under a pier. Yeah, they're just there's hundreds of species that live in the waterways of New York. That is really cool. They're adorable. So you founded an ocean collective. I did. Ocean Collective, it's a consulting firm for ocean conservation strategies that are grounded in social justice. So how can we have both at the same time and make sure we're taking care of coastal communities as we're thinking through um, what the conservation solutions are? And it's uh, a dozen women who have all sorts of different areas of expertise Mm -hmm. um, from science to education to policy to political strategy Mm -hmm. to robotics and engineering um, and community communications and film, because all conservation work is inherently multidisciplinary. So I really was excited to build this team with this enormous diversity of skills. Do you work globally? Um, Yeah, a lot of our work is sort of general, like doing um, an assessment of plastic pollution problems Mm -hmm. and solutions or the seafood supply chain. Um, And some of it is more grounded in a particular place. 
I'm so interested in what you said about it being multidisciplinary because Mm -hmm. I think with scientists, often you just end up in your own zone and there's so much to study. Mm -hmm. Like you could literally just look at those seahorses for the rest of your life. So whether it's plastic pollution or sea level rise or sustainable seafood, there's obviously a scientific component to understanding the problem and then designing the solution. But there's also obviously an economic component. And what would the policy strategy be? And is there a political strategy that's needed? And um, how do we communicate these ideas well? And do we need to create a film to help explain it? So it's really important to be able to bring all of those skills to the table when we're thinking about these complicated problems and not only what the solutions would be, but how to actually push them forward. And so when it comes to the sea, like how bad Mm. is it? Like what's happening? The ocean's been doing a lot of uh, buffering of the things that we've done to the climate system. The ocean has absorbed 90% of the heat that's been excess trapped by greenhouse gases um, and 40% or so of the carbon dioxide. And So just imagine if the ocean weren't there, how much more of a pickle we'd be in, right? But the problem is that absorbing all this heat and absorbing all this CO2 has actually changed the entire ocean. It's changing the way that currents are flowing. It's changing the actual chemistry of the seawater, the pH. It's becoming more acidic. So ocean acidification is a result of burning fossil fuels, and that has really big implications for the ability of some creatures to grow shells like corals or oysters Mm. um, and even to smell things. because the water just is a different medium than it used to be. I was interested that the UN actually had its first major conference on oceans quite recently, just to focus on the issues that you're talking about, including acidification, which Mm -hmm. is a real problem, and um, rising sea levels. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I think people don't really have a good grasp of how big a deal that's going to be because... Mm -hmm. The majority of people around the world live quite near to the coast. 75 Um, million people live within one metre of the sea around the world. 75 million. Wow. So any rise and they're affected. Yeah. Mm. In the US, it's about 40% of people who live in coastal counties. Mm. um, And most of those are in cities. And Mm. that's why I'm interested in the intersection of ocean conservation and cities right now. But I think in Bangladesh alone, we're expecting to have tens of millions of climate refugees when sea level rises. And it's the kind of thing that people can't get their heads around because it's such a dramatic shift in the way we use the coast. So it's, it's, it's flooding and inundation of homes, but also the loss of coastal infrastructure the joke is, which drives me crazy, rich people are like, oh, great, now my property will be beachfront property. Well, and yeah. you say, like, not only does this disregard what's going to happen to people whose first homes and only homes are lost and don't have insurance to rebuild or move, mm-hmm. but you've also missed the point that you won't be able to get there because the road will be flooded and right. the electricity, the power will be out. And so they'd be like, oh, I have my helicopter. <laughs> yeah. But you know what it was interesting about what you the way you said it, you said there will be hundreds of millions of climate refugees when the sea levels rise. When they rise further. When they rise further. <laughs> yeah. So you're not saying if they rise. Oh, it's a given. We've already baked in so much heat into the system and the ice at the poles is already melting. And the thing that never gets talked about is that seawater actually just expands when it's heated. So there's so much sea level rise that will happen even if no ice melts just because it's expanding as the water heats up. I That was something that I didn't understand. Yeah. I thought sea levels are rising 
because of like melted ice was joining the water. Mm-hmm. That's part of it, yeah. But it's also because like warmer water takes up more space. Thermal expansion. Thermal expansion. There you go. <laughs> Is that why I feel bloated in the summer? <laughs> That's, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be those margaritas? <laughs> No, so, I mean, this is why we have to stay at the 1.5 degrees of warming. Um, it's between 1.5 and 2 degrees that the worst of this would happen and probably the Arctic ice as a whole would go. Isn't that, isn't that right? I think it's very unlikely that we're going to stay at 1.5 at this point. And so we really need to start thinking about what happens when we hit 2 and beyond that because we are in a scenario where it's not just a foot of sea level rise that we're expecting. We're expecting like a meter or two meters of sea level rise. Within what time frame? Uh, by the end of this century and sooner if the ice goes. No, but this in is Greenland, kind of Greenland. still business as usual. We have to change. And I think we have to be very clear about that. Yeah. I mean, New York City with two meters of sea level rise and then you have a storm surge or you have a high tide, it's, we're done. Like, this That's is unlivable. The entire city. It's the lower half of Manhattan anyway and a and lot Brooklyn. of Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah. It's just so hard to even conceive of that much rise. And I think the ridiculous part of it is this assumption that we can just build a wall and somehow mm, hold yeah. back mm. the entire ocean mm. and assume that there's an easy technological solution. Like the entire world could just become a new version of the Netherlands with these the dams everywhere. fancy gates that hold back the sea. And that's just hubris. It's absurd. We actually do need to move away from the coast for our safety. So what keeps you going in this? I mean, what, how do you stay focused on the work and like what do you do for your own uh, emotional health? <laughs> um, that's a great, great question and super important. Um, well, my New Year's resolution, one mm-hmm. of them this year was uh, fewer meetings, more reading oh. and more baths. More, <laughs> you're such a water baby. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I, I also, my mother has a farm upstate New York, yeah. and I'm up there um, almost a week every month with really bad internet and no cell phone reception. And, and a lot of fresh a, air. A lot of fresh air and, and a few hundred chickens and yeah, yeah. Um, mm. a stream with a waterfall out back. And so just getting a dose of nature is really important. I live near a park in Brooklyn as well. I think those of us who are focused a lot on the climate issue need to be aware that it takes its toll, you know, just mentally and in anxiety terms. I also find dark humor to be really (laughs) helpful. So I um, I doesn't understand. (laughs) I I find birthday parties to be really stressful, but I wanted to see all my friends. And someone reminded me it was my half birthday. (laughs) So last weekend I threw myself a half birthday party, which was Uh, all my friends meet me at a dive bar at 9 p.m. I'll be there. I'll put $50 in the jukebox. It'll be the best night ever. Because <laughs> um, I don't have time to hang out with each of you individually mm-hmm. to go for tea and a walk in the park or cook you dinner because hashtag climate crisis. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Did you have a great time? It was the best. We should tell all of our mothers of invention about this. Yes. Because it is, it's so stressful. Mm. But then you just get to mm. say, you get an extra birthday every year because you're doing this work. <laughs> <laughs> Invite all your friends. And then you age more quickly. Oh, and then you age more <laughs> well, quickly. we're already aging. Might as well celebrate it. Yeah. So speaking of both islands and rising sea levels... 
We're now going to hear from our next mother of invention, and he's the second man that we've included on the show since we began. Mohammed Nasheed was the first democratically elected president of the Maldives, one of the small island nations most at risk of sea level rising, and a very impressive leader who did so much to hold the international community to account on climate change. I remember the leadership he gave in Copenhagen at the COP in 2009. He was ousted in a coup in 2012, and he took exile in London, where I actually met him. But he's back there again in the Maldives, and he was barred from running again as president, so he's running as a member of parliament right now for the elections in April. Our producer Namita caught up with Nasheed on the campaign trail in Mali. No, no, I'm ready, I'm ready. Let's start. Are you, is sound is okay for you? Well, um, the Maldives is a very big ocean state. It's, it's not a small island state. We stretch from uh, up north to south more than a thousand kilometers. And we are again wide by 600 miles. When we grew up in the Maldives, we had beach, uh, we had the sea, and we went swimming almost every day. And so we grew up with the elements. We grew up with the coral, we grew up with the fish, we grew up with the sea. And then, of course, uh, you would have the dragonflies during the monsoons and uh, we ran after them uh, um, and the butterflies. These islands are right in the middle of the elements and you can't escape it. We grow up, we live with nature, not against it. I went to do um, my first degree in, in Liverpool. It's a port city. Um, and therefore, the Docklands um, uh, fascinated me and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. I had started uh, routinely writing while I was uh, in, in Liverpool. And when I came back to the Maldives, I started uh, a small magazine uh, with some of the friends uh, and continued writing um, as a journalist. Our main focus was human rights and corruption and governance. So uh, that was for the liking of the government at that time. We had a dictatorship in the mountains, um, which was running strong for many, many, many years, uh, one dictator after the other. And uh, uh, the government deregistered our magazine. And that night they arrested uh, 270 people, along with that, the whole editorial board. So they, they arrested me. I was only um, 22. I had my 23rd birthday in stocks. Um, and I spent after that much of my 20s and all the way up to um, mid-30s in prison. It was very harsh conditions. And they tortured me um, twice in solitary confinement. This was all for writing, all for having a newspaper. And then I thought maybe, you know, if I sought election, they might just leave me alone and not arrest me. Ladies and gentlemen, Mohammed Nasheed, the president of the We won our battle for democracy in the Maldives. I stand before you today as the first democratically elected president 
in the history of our country. The path to democracy was not straightforward. It was bumpy and full of turns. A year later, and a continent away, we meet here to confront another seemingly impossible task. We are here to save our planet from the silent, patient, and invisible enemy that is climate change. A president of the Maldives made something of an international name for himself, trying to protect his nation of a thousand islands from rising sea levels. Two weeks ago, a different future overtook Nasheed. He resigned from the presidency, saying he was the victim of a coup. Every single opposition leader finally ended up in jail. Um, I was fortunate to be able to leave. I went to Sri Lanka and then to London. England gave me uh, um, a refugee passport and it gave me political asylum. You know, living in exile, um, away from home, away from uh, uh, the people you know, the culture that you are, you always are reminded of home, maybe, you know, a, a, a ray of light, a sound, a smell. Anything can take you back to home. Uh, and it wasn't easy. I was always very much focused on two things. One was climate change and the other was democracy in the Maldives. And we started uh, uh, getting ready for the elections here um, that we won uh, in 2018. After winning, um, I was able to come back to the Maldives and it was such a happy feeling to touch ground, come back home, uh, see your father, mother, your extended family, your friends. Um, and start life back again. Nasheed returned home to a hero's welcome today as thousands took to the seas of Mali and flooded the streets to welcome him. Sea level rise is not the immediate issue. Ocean acidification, higher temperatures and heating, ocean heating up, that is killing the corals. Now, uh, the Maldives is based on coral islands. The geological structure of the Maldives is coral. And if we lose the coral reefs, we will lose the Maldives. So it is very, very important now that we find more resilient coral. Just recently, um, I went to one of the islands um, and they wanted me to uh, have a look at a different species of coral. The diver, uh, who I've been diving with since school, is one of my classmates, but he has decided to live in this far-flung island. I recently visited him and we went diving and we saw this new species of coral. There's no one in the Maldives who has dived to more reefs than he has. And he's saying that there is a specific species of coral that is more resilient to high temperatures. India has as many islands as the Mongols. Now, surprisingly uh, and, and beautifully, India has implanted so much mangroves recently that bring you show protection from coastal erosion, flooding, and a whole host of natural disasters that we keep experiencing every day. Now, we want to use the same technology. We want to use the same methods to protect our coastlines. 
you would see in the Maldives a number of breakwaters around islands. Now these are built with very heavy engineering, with a huge, with a lot of rock boulders imported from um, all sorts of places. Uh, and this technology is actually 1920s and 30s and very obsolete. Um, but continuously the UN and the World Bank have been advocating these very wrong development concepts and designs. We really need to come up with a new economics and a new thinking uh, on infrastructure uh, that we can incorporate building a reef, implanting a mangrove to uh, uh, play the part of a breakwater. I have a, I have a, a press conference uh, at yeah, I have to appear with oh, okay, sir. So, sir, I can follow you with that. Yeah, you can come. Yeah. You can leave a lot of your stuff here and just take whatever you want. Well, he seems like such an extraordinary leader. Mary, where yeah, he, he really is, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, and uh, it was extraordinary the leadership he gave at Copenhagen and as a leader again in the Maldives because it's really important that small islands give leadership and have their voice heard. These small island states are really on the front lines of a lot of this because they're right there at sea level. The Maldives, as well as a lot of other um, island states, have played a really incredible leadership role. Tell us a bit about mangroves. I know how important mm. they are. And I think, again, we're seeing them being eroded, aren't we? So mangroves are magical. They're, yeah. they're trees that live on the coast and they can tolerate salt water. So their roots are directly in salt water and their roots are kind of like these crazy legs that are above water and they create this web within which a lot of other species live. And so juvenile fish that then grow up to be really valuable for um, the fishermen and for food security live in that area. And mangroves can absorb more carbon per kilometer squared than even a uh, rainforest. They're incredibly good at absorbing carbon and sequestering it in the soil. So they're really important as um, a climate solution. And they also, because they grow along the coast, are really important buffer from storms. Yeah. So when you have a storm come through, the places that have mangroves intact um, fare a lot better. So I'm just enamored You're with like mangroves. They do all of these important things. Mangroves. We should obviously keep them around. And they're quite easy to replant, too. So really? there's been a big effort then, to replant so, them. So, Ayana, I'm thinking of you as the little five-year-old girl on this glass-bottom boat looking at the coral. Have you been back to the Florida Keys as a grown-up? Is I the coral still there? And it's one of the most damaged reefs um in the world. Disease came and wiped out a lot of the corals. Mm -hmm. Overfishing took out a lot of the herbivorous fish that were eating the algae off the reefs and keeping it clean. And so it's one of the saddest looking coral reefs that we have. And at some point you have to think like, does it classify as a coral reef still? How much coral has to be there for it right. to be a reef as opposed to like formerly known as a coral reef and currently bits of coral? Is it possible to reseed? Can you do work on bringing back? Sort of is, mm -hmm. is the yeah. scientific answer. There's definitely a lot of really impressive work going on now with trying to understand how to replant corals and that can work at a small scale. There are nurseries growing baby corals which you can then plant out 
um, on the reef and help it regrow. They're doing some really interesting genetic work with corals to figure out which types are the most resistant to heat or changes in salinity and making sure those are the ones that they're sort of supporting and planting. But I mean, think of how big the Great Barrier Reef is. Mm. Yeah. We can certainly do a lot to protect corals at a small scale, but on a global scale, um, we actually just need to stop burning fossil fuels. Mm, That is the only way to save coral reefs Mm. globally. Mm. And was this part of your PhD or I think you were talking about fish and fishing and coral reef management? Yeah, I studied fishing. (laughs) Uh, Yes, my dissertation was called Fish, Fishing, Diving and the Management of Coral Reefs. And I did all this work in the Caribbean in Curacao and Bonaire. How much much fun did you have diving during all of this? Uh, You know, it turns out I don't love scuba diving. Oh, no. It's (laughs) like this required doing two or 300 scuba dives, testing out a bunch of different trap designs and different reefs and different places and diving three or four times a day. And by the third time you put on a wet wetsuit and it has salt crystallized on it and you're pulling it up your leg and like your knuckles are raw because of the salt is so sharp when it's dry. And you're just like a cranky prune and you're in 80 degree water and you're shivering. I just wasn't that into it at that point. Yeah. You now know like my dirtiest secret. Um, I learned to dive explicitly because I couldn't hold my breath long enough to count fish to Mm. do this research. Yes. Um, And I really wanted to understand how to make fishing more sustainable by redesigning fishing gear, fish traps in particular. Um, And so I worked with the local fishermen to figure that out. And we designed them with just a simple slot in the corner of the trap that the the baby fish and the ornamental species get out and the fishermen and the really make thin the ones. same. Yeah, the skinny guys leave it. No one's need anyway. Um, and then the fishermen make the same amount of money while reducing this bycatch by 80%. Mm. So it was a really great win-win situation. And now that's required by law in a bunch of different places. Mm. Um, I guess that would be my invention since I haven't actually invented and birthed a human. Um, I've birthed some other things. That is the coolest thing. Yeah. Um, and you're not even like expecting to invent something you were just like studying and then you were like hey look at this but the problem of overfishing is a very real problem it's a huge problem about 93% of fish populations are either overfished which is about a third or fished to their maximum capacity so we have to figure out other ways to feed ourselves it's part of extinction of species that we're yeah. We're seeing more and more on the lack of diversity now. World War II created all this technology in terms of helicopters and radar and sonar mm. and depth finders and all this stuff. And after the war, that was all shifted to be used for fishing. So we're actually using weapons of war to find and kill the last fish. I never put that together before, hmm. that the military might yeah. c- then translates to fish fingers. Yeah. Well- <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know whether I'm helping by becoming a pescatarian. <laughs> it's a good step <laughs> in the right my, direction. I'm doing, I'm doing my best. Those are her friends that just you're eating. Just don't eat any octopus because they're probably smarter than all of us. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're no. They're the best. Octopus? Yeah, that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? If you're like, does he know? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> they're so cool. You're holding your heart. Oh, you obviously, you don't eat calamari. Uh, that's a squid. They're not as smart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't I don't eat a lot of seafood. No. Okay. 
In my opinion, the most sustainable fish to eat are the tiny ones, the sardines and anchovies that are low on the food chain. They yeah. reproduce really quickly. They're more abundant. Um, and they also have the highest levels of omega-3s and the lowest levels of toxins because um, they don't live as long to accumulate all that mercury and PCBs and heavy metals. So there's a win-win for human health and fisheries um, when you think about eating tiny fish, but also eating farmed things that don't need to be fed wild things. So right now, the way that fish farming is done, salmon farming, you're often catching wild fish to feed the farmed fish, and it can be really um, polluting on the environment. But on the flip side, there's a really good way to do aquaculture, and I think we're going to be talking about that next. Our final mother of this show is somebody, Ayana, that you know. So she's here to help us understand more about how the oceans can look after us, even as we fail to look after them. She's an underwater farmer. Welcome, Jill Pegnataro. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You guys know each other already. So we just met today, but I am very familiar with Green Wave, the organization that she works for, and I'm an enormous fan. Like awkward. Thank fan you. <laughs> and at Green Wave, we look up to you very much, Ayana. So thank you so much for inviting this me. This is a mutual fan club here. Oh, yes. I very awkward love fest. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much. Welcome, Jill. And I think you'll have to tell the rest of us about your uh, Green Wave 3D model. Sure. So um, at Green Wave, we're here building the next generation of restorative ocean farmers. The emphasis on restorative. And that, yes, yeah. exactly. So um, what that means is it's a polyculture farm, which means you have multiple species um, and that increases. And they can date whoever they want. Exactly. <laughs> um, and what these species are doing is um, shellfish. They're eating the zooplankton and the phytoplankton that are in the water column and they're filtering the water. And the shellfish are at the bottom? um, The shellfish can be at the bottom in cages. Mm -hmm. You can have mussels grown in socks, which is basically um, a mesh net that's long and can hang from a line. Um, And you can have scallops and lanterns, which is basically a basket divided um, and have scallops throughout it. Um, There's a whole bunch of different options for for farmers to diversify their farms. The fish farming we hear about, it's one species, isn't it? And they... Yeah, so so we're not growing fish on our farms mm-hmm. at all. It's all mm-hmm. shellfish and seaweed. So mm-hmm. we're growing sugar kelp on our farm. And sugar kelps are restorative because they're actually absorbing the carbon that's in the water. So you don't actually need any fertilizer. You don't need to feed this stuff. It just grows. There are zero inputs to it, which is one of the reasons why it's so sustainable. Um, no fertilizers, no additives. It's simply using what's in the water column to grow nutritious and sustainable food. So help us like see even better, like what does it look like? So you described there's like cages on the bottom for clams. There's like mussels growing on ropes, socks, <laughs> socks hanging in the water. You've got uh, Is these... this in a kind of pool area or is it way out in the ocean? So it's usually on a shellfish plot, which is okay. about 20 to 30 feet deep. And you can usually see the shore from from where it is. So it's not but too far away. Do you need away. to get a boat out there? Yes. So to start our regenerative farms, we say that you should have a 20-acre plot on the ocean, um, $20,000, and a boat. <laughs> so only $20,000. I, I don't know how much it would farm. be to set up a farm on land, but it would be... Oh, gosh. Hundreds of... 
a lot more. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's cost effective. People can start um, a shellfish or a seaweed farm much more easily than a land-based farm. And you're also thinking about, um, you know, in climate change with a food, a food crisis in the future, how are we going to find new ways to grow food? Mm-hmm. And this regenerative, restorative model is really a way to grow nutritious food while also giving back to the oceans. Wait, is the food the... Seaweed? The shellfish. They're both. Shellfish are high in protein, uh, a delicacy. And uh, seaweed is high in vitamins and minerals. And protein. um, And protein. And seaweeds, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know it had protein. So one of the things that I learned from Green Wave was that farming in the ocean, it's three dimensions. It's Mm -hmm. not just the land. And so you can farm at all these different depths. And so you can create just like an insane amount of food out of a small area. So in southern New England, if you have a 200-foot kelp line, you can get four to six pounds per foot on that line. So you'd have anywhere from 800 to 1,200 pounds Mm -hmm. of seaweed. There's a lot of iodine in seaweed, which Mm -hmm. is a nutrient that a lot of people are deficient in these days because we're not eating as much fish and other things. And who are the farmers that are doing this now? I mean, um. So we have a uh, farmer and training program. Mm -hmm. It's a two-year program based in southern New England. And we work one-on-one with farmers through the entire process of permitting. We show them how to seed and how to harvest, how to set up their gear, um, and provide the seed from our hatchery for the first two years of their operation. So do you have any graduates yet, or you're still new? We do have some graduates um, from our farmer and training program, and uh, we're still working with them. And we're using their farms to collect water quality data, Mm -hmm. and we're doing that to um, sort of pin point um, the exact temperature that you want to seed or when exactly you want to harvest. So coming up with that information um, and them helping us with I, just I was I was amazed to read that this is one of the 25 best inventions of 2017, according to Time magazine. Um, That's yes. cool. Yeah, yeah, they've that been winning been. a lot of awards. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think because the model is easy to replicate, yeah. um, you know, Cost efficient. And it addresses something we have to address, food security. Exactly. And do it in a sustainable, restorative way. The thing that um, I find really fascinating about this in terms of diet and climate is Mm. I recently learned that a diet that includes shellfish can actually have a lower carbon footprint than being purely vegan because it's such an efficient way to produce protein. To get your protein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that I was relieved to hear because I do like eating oysters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you grow oysters? And wool-free. I mean, come on, let's live a little. We we do grow oysters. (laughs) Yeah, our our farm has oysters and sugar kelp. It's located in the Thimble Islands in Branford, Connecticut, and it's a fully functioning ocean farm, and we actually teach our farmers in training out there. It's our floating Mm -hmm. classroom. To make the biggest impact on the environment, we're looking to help people all across the country. So sort of a goal of Green Wave is to expand to 10 different regions in the U.S. um, in the next five years. And that equates to 500 restorative ocean farms in the water. And something that we've noticed recently is actually women coming up and becoming leaders in this Mm -hmm. industry. Um, And so ways that we're helping to support them through farming, but also in our newsletter, we've created Who Farms Matters page. um, And we're sort of highlighting the women that we work with um, 
and listening to their stories and seeing how they envision this kelp industry mm -hmm. um, and how they want it to be. Very and cool. can this be replicated um, elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so um, it definitely has to do with where the seaweeds can grow, what right. water temperatures. Our kelp that we grow is yeah. sugar kelp, um, and it likes cold waters. Right. So it's... Um, well, luckily, there's a lot of different kinds of seaweed out there. Yes. So, um, yes, there is. I'm really interested in the connections between farming on land and farming on sea. And I know... Um, that there's two ways specifically for that connection to happen in a really positive way. One is feeding seaweed to animals, mm -hmm. and another is using seaweed as fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear more about those things. Sure. So there's definitely a market for seaweed and animal feed. They've done studies where they found that I believe the type of seaweed is asparagopsis, where they're... Um, I love a good Latin name. <laughs> um, this one in particular is great for... Um, cattle yeah. and they're finding that it can reduce the amount of methane that they produce oh, wow. by over 50 percent because it's easier for them to digest or something i'm not it makes them less gassy sore. they don't burp as much yeah. when they eat seaweed mm. and i can't a, believe it like half as much it's a very small percentage that's added into the feed mm -hmm. that's actually able mm. to make a difference mm. i think they discovered that maybe even in ireland there were some fields where cows were grazing on the coast yep. and after storms all the yep. seaweed would wash up and then they would mm -hmm. notice that the, their digestion was different. Mm. Really? Yeah, seaweed has been used for centuries for feeding cattle and other livestock. Mm -hmm. And what about fertilizer? And fertilizer. So because of the nutrient value in kelp that it's able to absorb from the water column makes for a great fertilizer as well. And so that kind of closes the cycle by using the kelp that we're growing in the oceans to fertilize these farms. And then it washes back and it's mm -hmm. able to reabsorb mm -hmm. the kelp. Um, so Does your mother use seaweed? She does. Um, she puts a little bit of it in her chicken feed. Has the, has the World Bank been studying your actual GreenWave 3D model? They've just done a global assessment of the, the potential of um, this kind of ocean farming. Um, so one of the figures that the World Bank came up with was that um, if we do kelp aquaculture in 5% of U.S. waters, it can sequester 350 million tons of carbon um, within a year, which is about, I believe, 3.2% of the carbon that's absorbed into the oceans. That's very impressive. The bank also said that by creating these farms in 5% of U.S. waters, we could create 50 million new jobs. Um, so, like I was saying... That would be the add-on jobs. The, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, every part of the mm -hmm. industry that's contributing mm -hmm. to local economies... That would be like those people who make the little shucking knives for oysters. <laughs> <laughs> <That'd be laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of Pearl um, jobs. designers. I, I'm just wondering, I was asking you about whether it could be replicated outside the United States. And you were saying, you know, basically what you're doing needs cold water. Um, but... You know, is it possible to think of examples for, you know, tropical climates, you know, the developing country yes, you know, ideas they, because they need, you know, the replicable restorative food production? Yes, they are growing in tropical areas, but just different types of seaweed. Well, what, yeah. what I'm really impressed by is that, that there are no inputs into it. There's no fertilizer. Yes, there's no, yeah. there's, no, there's nothing going in that's... You just need light, have, right? Light, yeah, they live mm. off um, of sunlight. The kelp does. The oysters are able to filter feed, and an adult oyster can filter up to fifty gallons a day. Mm. Um, so, yeah. and they look like they're doing nothing. 
<laughs> they're just little shells hanging out. <laughs> they're, they're actually so busy. Yeah, yeah. They they need a little love and care, but yeah. yes, mm-hmm, yeah. No, it's just such a good idea. Mary's about to buy stocks from you. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I, a, as I as speaking as a pescatarian. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Is there a way to support your nonprofit? Um, I believe there are uh, ways to donate on our website, www.greenwave.org. What do you mean, I believe? Of course you know. There are. Greenwave.org, give them all your money. www.greenwave.org. And our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter and learn about Who Farms Matters. Great. Well, thank you so much for your expertise and your insight. Yes. It's so fascinating. Thank you very much, Jill. It's really impressive. Thank you for having Um, me. And I love the idea who farms matters. Yes, who farms matters. And how they farm matters. Yes. Yeah, great. Ayana, I'm going to take you up on what I feel is a little bit your resignation to the fact that we can't stay at 1.5. The scientists told us in the uh, you know, at the report on global warming needing to stay at 1.5, that it is doable. So, you know, you're a scientist. Um, are you contradicting all these scientists? Oh, it's theoretically doable. Well, they were saying more than theoretically. They were saying it's a matter of political will. Exactly. That's yeah. the theory. Yeah. <laughs> it's scientifically, we could do it. And we must. But will we? Well... Uh, it just remains to be seen, right? If, I think if, if mothers of invention take over the world, we will. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, when that happens, I will have no more concerns about the ability to stay at 1.5 degrees <laughs> centigrade. Ayanna, we'd love to thank you for being our guest Mother of Invention host. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Adapted very quickly to our rather crazy style. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to be adaptive in this day and age. True. Where can people find you and your work? You can find out more about Ocean Collective at oceancollective.co. There's no E at the end of collective because that's actually a heavy metal band in Australia. <laughs> so no E in my version of Ocean Collective. Because yes. the way I saw it, I was like, Ocean Collective. Yeah, no, it's not hip. It just was already taken. Okay. Um, and then uh, all of my writing is on ayanaelizabeth.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank yeah, you. Fantastic. We're also so interested to know what you, our listeners, would like to hear more about. We already asked for and received lots of great suggestions on our social media feeds for women who should be recognised as mothers of invention. So keep up the nominations. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mothers Invent. Mothers of Invention is a production of Doc Society, and it's made possible by the support of our partners, the Climate Justice Resilience Fund, the Compton Foundation, the Wallace Global Fund, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, and the European Climate Foundation, and of course, our loyal DRIP crowdfunders. Our series producer is Somali Kadikara. The executive producers are Jess Search and Beanie Finzi. Our audio producer and sound wizard is Anne Pope, and Jade Asanta is our ace researcher. Namitha Veer Chopra produced our piece on former President Nasheed in the Maldives. Aisha Yunus is our social media magician. Our climate expert consultants are Iris Andrews, Ed King and Catherine Wilkinson. Our theme music is Water Fountain by Tune Yards with kind permission from 4AD and Marriage Records. <laughs>